Welcome to Making Connections News, a program exploring opportunities and challenges for building a new economy and healthy communities in central Appalachia. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this show, we will hear from Kentuckians experiencing unemployment, food insecurity, and housing evictions due to the coronavirus and the looming cutoff of many aid programs that were passed as part of the CARES Act last spring. Their comments come from a December 3rd press conference organized by the Kentucky Center for Budget Policy and the Kentucky Together Coalition to call for immediate and large-scale federal aid to support individuals, businesses, health care, and state and local governments. As we put this show together, congressional leaders are promising to pass some sort of COVID-related aid package before the end of the year but it looks to be much smaller than what economists say is needed to keep households and businesses afloat. We end the show with an interview with Jessica Wilkerson about her book, To Live Here You Have to Fight, How Women-Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice. And thank you for joining us today. My name is Natalie Cunningham, and I am the Outreach Director for the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, and I'll be your host today. With COVID-19 cases rising this holiday season and nearly 2,000 Kentucky lives lost to the virus, Kentuckians are struggling. Federal aid provided earlier this year helped families affected by the pandemic and economic downturn, but that help is running out. After months of thwarting movement on a robust aid package, Senator McConnell proposed another relief bill that comes nowhere close to meet the needs of struggling Kentucky families. As Federal Reserve Chairman Powell said, too little support will lead to a weak recovery, creating unnecessary hardship for households and businesses. We're here today to talk about exactly what is needed to provide the recovery this country and Kentuckians deserve, and to speak with our neighbors who have been personally affected by this crisis. Please join me in welcoming our speakers, uh, Dustin Pugel, Senior Policy Analyst at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, Adrian Bush, the Executive Director for the Homeless and Housing Coalition of Kentucky, and they'll provide some context for us as we hear from some of our neighbors and fellow Kentuckians, uh, Laura Holman, Catherine Gorby, Valerie Frost, Soda Millington, and Ada Avila. And so without further ado, I will hand it on over to Dustin. Thanks, everybody. Again, my name is Dustin Pugel. I'm the Senior Policy Analyst with KY Policy. Um, And I'm just going to sort of set the stage for the rest of our speakers here uh, with kind of where the state of play is in Kentucky. You know, we're in the middle of an economic downturn like none we've seen in generations. 177,000 fewer Kentuckians are employed today compared to before the pandemic hit. And the recovery is slowing just at the same time that COVID cases are surging and as vital forms of aid have expired or will expire very soon. Supplemental unemployment benefits ended months ago. The extended benefits program for long-term unemployed Kentuckians was abruptly cut off, leaving nearly 5,000 Kentuckians without any income. The two remaining special unemployment programs for gig workers and those who need additional weeks are set to expire the day after Christmas leaving 101,000 more Kentuckians with no income. The only round of stimulus checks has pretty much all been spent by now. CARES Act monies that support state and local governments have have provided relief for rent and utilities will run out by the year's end. 
Federally funded paid leave expires by the end of the year, as does the moratorium on evictions. And over half a million Kentuckians who have been able to defer their student loans will have to start paying those again in January, just as the rest of this aid runs out. The federal aid we've received up to this point has really helped prop up our economy and our, and our public revenue. But now without the, with the federal tap being shut off, even while the pandemic is raging, we face a dire situation for workers, families, and our economy. Kentucky and the nation really need a robust federal relief package before the end of the month. And that package should include things like aid to state and local governments, a restoration of expanded employment benefits, and an extension of those benefits that will only expire once we've fully recovered. We need rental and food assistance and an extension of the evictions moratorium. Uh, we need small business support. We need funding to directly combat the, the COVID virus, as well as uh, funding for the distribution and production of a vaccine. And we need a lot more than that. The proposal that Natalie mentioned earlier that Leader McConnell put forward falls far short of what we need. New census data shows that 36% of Kentucky adults are having difficulty paying usual household expenses. Many Kentuckians are facing extreme hardship right now with hunger, housing insecurity, and joblessness at levels unseen in decades. And after 12 years of repeated cuts to our state budget, we're once again facing austerity at a time when the need for government services are at their height. Congress must act, and in particular, the Senate must get serious about agreeing to a bipartisan aid package that actually meets the challenges we face in this moment. If they don't, the recession will be much deeper, much longer, and much more painful. The consequences for inaction are dire, and the clock is ticking. Hi everyone, my name is Adrian Bush. I'm the Executive Director of the Homeless and Housing Coalition of Kentucky. As we move into the holiday season under the increasing threat of COVID-19, Kentuckians' hardships continue to grow. We need Senate Majority Leader McConnell to prioritize real assistance to his constituents. And that includes robust rent relief, an extension and expansion of the CDC's national eviction moratorium and continued homeless assistance through the winter months. The latest data from the Census Bureau is bleak and lines up with what we are seeing happen to our neighbors and friends. Thanks to zero meaningful relief since the passage of the CARES Act at the end of March, Kentuckians are behind on rent. They continue to face the threat of eviction with the expiration of the moratorium on New Year's Eve and small cities are struggling to put together the resources to safely shelter people experiencing homelessness. The Household Pulse study from the beginning of November indicates that 15% or 115,000 households are behind on rent in Kentucky. 20% of Black home renters are behind on rent. 7% of all renting households have no confidence in ability to make next month's rent and 13% of Black home renters report the same. 32% of all home renters think it is somewhat to very likely they will have to leave their home due to eviction in the next two months. And according to the firm Stout, the estimated rent shortfall in Kentucky is between 236 million and 350 million. All of this while the state rental assistance program closed a month ago after obligating all $15 million in the Healthy at Home Eviction Relief Fund, leaving Kentuckians in 118 counties with no broad-based rent relief in sight. 
Not only do we need rent relief, we need legal protections. In the same study, the firm Stout estimated a conservative number of 120 evictions to be filed in January. The CDC eviction moratorium was a good start in allowing folks to stay in their homes and make good faith efforts to keep up with rent. But the Senate needs to take decisive and comprehensive action to implement a universal moratorium with no loopholes. Court-ordered evictions and forcible detainers are still happening due to other lease violations, usually used as a pretext for evicting, when the real reason is the family's inability to pay due to COVID-19 economic hardship. We need a down payment on assistance now. The ball is in the Senate's court and it is the majority leader's obligation to act now with real assistance that helps real people here in Kentucky. Thank you. Next to speak is Laura Holman, who's been juggling several jobs during the pandemic. Thank you so much uh, for being with us, Laura. And I know that you are at work right now, so we wanna be as swift as possible. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your story, how things have been for you uh, during the pandemic and um, what kinds of struggles with unemployment you've been dealing with or any other struggles Uh, you've been dealing with? Well, I have, I actually, I've been pretty fortunate. I um, had a part-time job. I was able to fall back on for a little bit, Um, but I did file my unemployment. It took me five weeks to get it um, for my full-time job. What I'm aware of is I never even got the back pay for that five for that five weeks. I was still short, you know. Um, it did put me a little bit behind on bills, which I'm still working on currently catching up. Um, the rent was my main priority, and I did pay that up for the most part. Um, prior to moving out of my townhouse, but during moving out of the townhouse, they were also trying to evict me. Mm-hmm. Um, you were trying to convict, I did, evict you as you were moving out? Like I had told, they were trying to, to start an eviction prior to me, like moving out. Uh, I had called them and left them a voicemail and I had sent them a text and told them that I would be out by the end of October. They, um, we went to court, I believe it was uh, the end of October or the beginning of November. I had to go to court, which was pushed back. And then um, I had to go to court the second time. So I did show up the second time and they were gonna push it back again. So I had not only missed a day of work to be in court, um, but the judge, did lift everything she dismissed it because I had explained to her I had already moved out and that they were still trying to file an eviction against me and I had been gone for like a month wow yeah I mean it it, this hardship is not just hard on me it's hard on everybody Mm -hmm. you know I mean and and I, I understand people you know people who are providing homes and stuff to be rented or needing their income as well. I I understand that. But, you know, people who are not as fortunate as I am, who have been out of work and didn't have a second income to fall back on, who didn't prepare for something such as this, you know, to even help a little bit. You know, I mean, 
people do need help and they need help bad because I have come across several different people who have been in bad situations with their rent and they can't pay. Well, and it sounds like you're, you know, lucky to be back at work again um, in the middle of yes. all of this. And I hope that you're able to take care of your health um, while you're going back to work. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add it before we move on to our next speaker? No, I don't believe so. I just hope that this is, this, you know, people get the help that they need. Well, and thank you so much for being with us and um, sharing your story, especially considering that you are back at work and taking your break to come do this for us. So thank you so much for being <laughs> yes, with us. Uh, Valerie, are you with us? Valerie Frost, I know that you have um, some sleeping children, so we'd like to <laughs> allow you to speak. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Valerie Frost. Um, I am a single mother of three-year-old twins, and I live in Madison County. Um, and being the sole provider in my household, we did already fall under the federal poverty line prior to COVID. So I was already a SNAP recipient. Um, and the SNAP program for us, um, as I'm sure many other families, we have unique circumstances here that make this program the most beneficial to us um, as far as food benefits go. Um, my twins were both premature. They were born at 28 weeks. And uh, my son is autistic. He is a severe picky eater. He was on a feeding tube last year, um, and it, he's very rigid with what he will eat. Um, you know, they say, well, they'll eat when they're hungry. You know, that's a thing that people say, and that doesn't apply here. My son will only eat his preferred foods. So I have to get the foods that he will eat, and it's an ongoing challenge. He's in feeding therapy. Um, and then my daughter, on the other hand, she has nine food allergies. Uh, not including a milk protein allergy. Um, and a lot of them are common uh, ingredients like apples and corn, which is all corn syrup and all that that's in all the kids' snacks. So I have to go to three different stores to read all the ingredients and find replacements to give her, you know, common foods that kids eat, like graham crackers, you know, all the general meals, cereal. She, she also has oats oat allergy. So I have to replace all her cereal. And then with the replacements for her allergies, a lot of times it ends up being a gluten-free food or organic. So it's more expensive. Um, and I'm just not able to cut our food budget. Um, and I know that people will say, well, there's lots of help out there. There's food banks, the school meals they're giving out now. And, you know, while they're very generous, like, unfortunately, they don't provide the food that my kids need. Um, they don't meet our dietary restrictions, um, you know, quite often. So they, you know, they'll give out apple juice. My daughter's allergic to apples or she's allergic to beef too, meat. We can't get the milk. Um, so SNAP is the only program that offers the flexibility for us to make choices. Um, whereas most everything else is a standard issue meal or meal package. And I appreciate it, but then we can't use it. Um, so with COVID, uh, we have been okay so far. Um, they did increase to maximum benefits for SNAP um, the last few months, months, which has been helpful, but we still do run out. Um, today's what, the third? I don't have any money on my food stamp card right now, and it renews on the ninth. So anything, any food that I buy between now and the ninth, I have to pay for out of pocket. Um, and even though that we've been okay, um, I have had reduced hours. I, I do work and I, uh, 
if I have hourly pay. I've had reduced hours because we've shut down a couple of times due to COVID. Um, I work for a preschool. And so when we have um, contact trace, exposure, you know, enough absences, we do have to shut down. Um, and so we have had days, you know, that we weren't there and I don't get paid. I don't get vacation pay or sick hours. Um, and so we've been okay. But um, even recently this week, um, the school's going to shut down for the whole rest of the month. And it's Christmas coming up. I have two small children. Um, so our budget was already tight and the COVID numbers are rising really fast. It doesn't seem like this is going anywhere. It doesn't seem like it's getting any better. Um, so it does place extra stress. And just to know that people want to not provide enough help or, you know, end some of these assistance is that's scary because, you know, I personally don't know next month what my finances are going to look like, or even this month. I mean, I'm just, I'm staying by here. So, um, I think what I want from my story to stress the most, um, is that, uh, and I like how Adrian said this, um, I'm a real person. I'm a real recipient of SNAP benefits. And I know there's so many misconceptions about people that receive social services. I work, I pay taxes, I contribute to the economy. I'm not just sitting here asking for handouts or to be lazy or, you know, I know that not everyone believes that, but, you know, hear things floating around. Um, and I really just think, you know, with Congress um, considering these increases, I want them to consider individual circumstances. Um, you know, I, I'm happy that I came here and I get to be able to share my story because I am an individual and I'm just trying to feed my family. That's it. So um, thank you all for letting me speak. Valerie, thank you so much. I, I think that you've said everything you need to say. <laughs> I just, I think your specific situation is just such a great example of everyone's different situations, right? And, and your needs are so very specific, but everyone has all of these very different needs. And I just really appreciate you for coming out here today and, and sharing them with us. Next up, if you are still with us, Catherine. Um, my name's Catherine. I'm a single mother of two children. Um, one lives with her father, but I have the other one with me. Um, I'm actually experiencing homelessness at the moment. Um, I bounce in between some family and friends. Uh, I lost my home in the beginning of the COVID. Um, I could no lo longer afford my rent and um, it took a while to get my uh, unemployment all figured out. Um, so then, you know, I had to pay to, for people to let me live with them. And then they just shut us down again. So I'm laid off again. Um, I'm a waitress, by the way. Um, so it's, it's a really big struggle right now. Um, I'm trying to get an income-based apartment somewhere, but there's a waiting list like crazy high. And anywhere else, I can't afford the rent. So it's a, it's a big of a struggle through all this. But it, we're making dues, though. Um, not sure really what else to say, really. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, so you said that you were able to apply for unemployment at the beginning of the, um, pandemic. Yeah, it took a while to get it because right. for some reason, a lot of our uh, cases got messed up on and we couldn't get a hold of anybody to have them fix it. 
So it took a while before we could get through to anybody on email. Right. And it's, you know, your bills don't stop during that time. Well, no. And I was also um, denied the lost wages assistance because I accidentally uh, was answering a question wrong on my unemployment and wasn't aware of it. Mm. Um, and the appeal, I don't know what's happening with it. I haven't heard anything on it. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, they just like the end of my unemployment came and I tried to, I thought that it would automatically like reapply for it, but it didn't. So these past few weeks, I didn't get a check either. Uh, I had to file a new claim. So. Well, and, and Soda, I know that you have a similar situation as far as, um, so I was wondering if you would like to speak and then we can kind of go back and forth because I know that both Soda and Catherine, you all are dealing with unemployment and um, housing insecurity and all of those things. Does that work for you guys? Yeah, it's fine. Okay, uh, sure. Soda, if you want to introduce yourself and start out, you can, and then we'll kind of go back and forth a little if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm uh, Soda, and I live in uh, Bowling Green, uh, Kentucky, and uh, luckily I've lived in the same house for a pretty long time, and my landlords have been tolerant of not uh, being always on time with the rent, but really it's just been a crapshoot trying to deal with unemployment and all of the other assistance places. With unemployment specifically, um, I had applied when we first went into lockdown back in March and then I didn't hear anything back and something within the the dashboard told me that I needed to refile my claim and so I did that and uh, then it, it it eliminated the like six weeks between that time period and it did start turning on my unemployment but it completely left me without those other weeks previously claimed because I'd filed a new claim once I found the the Facebook groups that talked about like everybody was trying to help each other out with unemployment. Most of the people in there were like, don't refile your claim. Don't do it. It's going to make things more complicated. I'm like, well, crap. I wish I would have known that before I had refiled like it had told me to. Um, and I have still been, I'm still haven't gotten in contact with anybody, whether I've emailed or called and I just get that lovely phone call from that 1-800 number that says, we're sorry that you haven't been able to get through to us. and you know, it's six months or so later now, eight months. Uh, and uh, and it's just the whole system is just really set up so poorly and it's been mismanaged. And I like for as advanced of a country that we are, we, I think I just can't believe that we had left ourselves at such a disadvantage with using such outdated, poorly functioning systems. Catherine, I see you shaking your head when she was talking about misinformation. Uh, I mean, I've been on the waiting list for unemployment to contact me back for about a month and a half, almost two months now. Um, and yeah, you get a call about seven, eight o'clock at night stating it's the unemployment office, but there's nobody there to speak to you. Um, and like in the beginning of the COVID, when I was able to get a hold of somebody through email to uh, help fix my claim, they shut the emails down. So now there's no way whatsoever. And I don't have an actual unemployment office here in Corbin. Mm. Um, so that makes it even harder. Soda, would you like to add anything else to your, um, well, I think the 
biggest thing is, is just the, the not knowing, you know, like I've always been someone that's kind of lived paycheck to paycheck, but I was able to like pull off living paycheck to paycheck and it wasn't the end of the world, but now it's like, you just don't know. And that is so stressful and so panic inducing. Like I'm okay with working. I like my job. Like I usually am, I've been going to college full time. I like going to college, but the, the unknown is so overwhelming that like my function level has been a lot lower because I'm just so stressed out. Like what, like, what do I do? How do I approach it? Like, it seems like almost every decision that I've made for 2020 has like been the wrong decision or the decision that made things harder in the long run than easier. And I'm ready to like, like, that's based on misinformation that people have given you. (laughs) <laughs> not, yeah, you know, people are yeah. making the wrong decisions. <laughs> well, there's that. And then like, you know, or the, I did get a part-time job after the first lockdown, but mm-hmm. then getting the part-time job made myself ineligible for the, if for unemployment because I was making too much money. But also I felt like I needed to get a new, um, I know there's some fancy term for it, but like when they, how they figure out how much money you're supposed to get every week. Like it didn't include the contract work that I did. So without being able to talk to somebody to get it reevaluated, oh, they were only giving me $118 a week. Like, so therefore working any part-time job, you're going to make more than $118 a week. Mm-hmm. And it just like, I'm like, well, I just literally shot myself in the foot by getting a part-time job. But when they were giving me the runaround with unemployment, like, I I like I needed money to eat and to just continue to survive and without with unemployment being so up in the air and so mishandled like it was like well I'll do this and I don't know and uh, right now like while it's easy to be like oh yeah we're gonna open back up on what the 21st or whatever for restaurants but with way things are the numbers are going up I think it would be naive to think that we're gonna actually reopen up on that date. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And um, Catherine and Soda, I really appreciate your time and your bravery in just speaking your truth and telling us about what is happening um, around Kentucky. So lastly, um, we would love to hear from Ada. Hi, everyone. As you mentioned, my name is Ada. And my story is a little different. So I have called Kentucky home for over 20 years along with my parents and my siblings. Uh, However, we were undocumented. I now have DACA. My parents are still undocumented. And so um, as you may know, or you may not know, that undocumented immigrants do not receive any kind of federal aid. Um, So this uh, COVID time, this pandemic time has been especially difficult for, for my family. So I'm the oldest of four, so I have three younger siblings, and um, at the beginning of the pandemic, my father, which is the, he's the main uh, breadwinner of the house, of the family, he lost his job, the company had to shut down, so he couldn't file for unemployment because he um, is not eligible for it because he doesn't have a social security number, Um, so that was really tough for us. And I am considered an essential employee, so I have been blessed enough to still be able to work. However, as you um, you know, when you are showing up to work and, and having to travel commute, so you do, you know, increase your risk of getting infected. My mom, she stays at home as much as she can as, uh, because she's immunocompromised. So if she were to get sick, 
she doesn't have health insurance and she wouldn't be eligible for any kind of federal aid for that. So we try to take care of her a lot. Um, and my two younger siblings, well, my three younger siblings, one is in college, um, the other one is in high school, and my little brother is in elementary school. Um, now my dad was able to find a job, but it did, it did take him a while, and so we did kind of struggle. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I totaled my car, so I did get the stimulus check, but I had to use that um, to help pay for a down payment for a new car, and because of my insurance, I still owed money on the car that I had totaled. I actually just finished paying it off um, yesterday. So I had to pay since February um, a monthly charge for a car that I didn't even own. So that was tough on us. My hours did get reduced, um, even though I am essential. So I wasn't working as many hours as I was in the beginning. Um, however, up until this point, none of us have been caught or infected with the, the virus, so we have that going for us. Um, but I mean, money-wise, we I, I, I just received the 1200 stimulus. My parents are not eligible for anything. My siblings, since they are citizens, we did get um, the extended SNAP because they received free lunch at school. So I don't know where we would have been if we would not have gotten that because it was a huge, huge help for for my family, um, so we are we are thankful for that. Um, but if we really do want to help as many people as possible, we can't ignore the millions of undocumented immigrants that are living in the U.S., working, paying taxes. Yes, we do pay taxes, and even though I pay taxes, I do not receive that back. I will not, um, even though I have a temporary residency with DACA right now. I still don't. Uh, I wouldn't receive it back. So. Um, and we're not the only family that's going through that. I know several families who had been infected and they don't have health insurance. Um, so it's, it's kind of a scary time right now. Um, and being undocumented, you know, not being able to visit our home country ever. My family has been in Mexico. Um, I only have my immediate family here. So it is already traumatizing enough um, to be an undocumented immigrant and to know that you can be detained and deported for just driving uh, to the grocery store or to work is, is something that you have to live with. And it's an uncertainty that we have dealt with in this country for over 20 years. And even if we wanted to file for citizenship, we can't. There's no law that allows us to. So that's kind of a little bit um, of my and my family's uh, story. I still live with my parents. And I try to help out with as much as I can, but um, it's, it's been really tough and we haven't really received much help because we're not eligible. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And I know that I speak for everyone else on the call and saying we're so thankful for your family's health that, you know, in the midst of all of this, you've been able to stay healthy. And so that is something to celebrate. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, it is so important that our next aid package be inclusive and really include everyone that is in this country. So I am so thankful for you bringing up um, your family and what you all are struggling with and dealing with. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add um, to this conversation as a whole before we kind of open it up? Um, yeah, just that it, it like, we have heard all the stories before mine and how everyone has a very specific and different situation. We all have very different needs. 
Um, but we are a community, we are a country, and if we really want the whole country to thrive and to be better, then we need to help everyone, not just a select few. And under very special circumstances, we need to be mindful that everyone does have very specific and different situations. And we need to do the best we can as a community, as a country, as a government to really come together and make sure that we have everyone in mind, not just the select few that have been blessed to receive help, that there are so many more of us. And essentially, if we help one, we help all. And that's something that sometimes I think we forget. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's exactly what I think we need to hear to end out this call. And I am so appreciative of you and everyone else that is here. Um, I do want to open it up now. If there are, I, I think we do have a couple of media outlets on the call. We have a question from Daniel. You've mentioned the need for federal relief. Are there any specific policies you'd like to see at the state level in order to hold people over until a larger federal relief package is available? And I think we have you know, discussed how whatever comes right now during this lame duck um, period is really a down payment. It's really something to help us get along and we expect more in the future, um, but, Anybody else on the call as far as what can our state do to help hold people over um, as we wait for additional relief from the federal side? Well, I'll just briefly uh, speak to this because it's, it's something we've written on before um, and I'll just speak for KY policy. You know, we have a significant amount of um, money from the CARES Act uh, that has yet to be spent. Um, and the governor has said that he, he plans on putting a lot of that toward the loan that we've had to take out to continue paying unemployment insurance benefits, you know, we think that the, you know, the use of the money um, to pay off the loan or pay off part of the loan is really unnecessary because the type of increase that businesses will be facing is pretty small and gradual. Um, and, and the last time we paid it off pretty quickly. So um, we would like to see that money spent uh, toward things like rent and utility relief, um, you know, much more than what has been done already, which was good, but um, inadequate ultimately uh, to meet the need that, that we have. And I think Adrian already mentioned a figure of close to 200 to $300 million in, in unpaid rent um, moving into January. Um, we think that that money could be used to uh, supplement pay cash payments um, through unemployment benefits or through KTAP, um, there are real needs in school districts right now um, for additional funding. So there are a lot of opportunities um, uh, for that money beyond, um, you know, putting putting a toward our unemployment insurance loan. Um, Andrea, I'll, I'll let you add to that if you'd like. I would agree with that. Um, it, as I mentioned, the Healthy at Home Eviction Relief Fund was very helpful. Um, because it was broad-based, flexible rental assistance devoted from the state's coronavirus relief fund. So it didn't come with all the um, requirements and red tape that typical federal programs do. And so, um, and it's been expended. And so to me, one way to make sure that we are providing relief to folks is to put some more money into there. Um, it, as far as the utility relief fund, it looks like that, according to the governor's office, um, it, there's still some room there. There's still about $11 million in there. So it, I, 
um, we're watching that carefully because we know a lot of people owe a lot of money with back utilities um, and we want to make sure that that's used and used well. As far as other state proposals um, that also get to Adam's question about the eviction front to avoid catastrophe in January, um, we're working on a couple of different angles. One is at the federal level, um, working to try to get the CDC to extend their eviction moratorium nationwide. Um, it also needs to be expanded though, because there were a lot of loopholes that left a lot of people vulnerable and homeless because of it. Um, there, you know, there's nothing precluding the state from taking action um, and extending the moratorium. There's nothing, it, the CDC doesn't prevent states from taking better action. Um, and in some cases in Louisville and Lexington, there's a movement to get um, Mayors Gordon and Mayor Fisher um, to enact local moratoriums. We obviously are worried about people in 120 counties and honestly people across the United States. The most effective way to get this done is at the federal level, across state lines. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, it's always good to remember just that this is a national <laughs> catastrophe that everyone is dealing with. And so the easiest way for us to actually meet needs is federally um, and to get relief straight from our federal government. The other, yeah, if I, I may, if yeah. I can follow up on that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we are very cognizant that an eviction moratorium is only one half or even a third of the solution. There has to be money to keep people housed. The money has to keep flowing. Um, and I am very worried about some of our small landlords who cannot, if you own a couple of properties, the profit margin is not there. Um, and so I, it, it's not that I am, it, we are taking a look at this, you know, from, I, I guess, a, both an individual perspective, because people, when they are, get evicted, they are losing their home. And then we're also taking a broader look at the housing market in general. Um, Catherine really spoke to the fact that there isn't enough affordable housing to begin with, mm -hmm. um, even before the pandemic. And so if we end up losing a bunch of rental market or rental housing because landlords haven't gotten paid, um, it, the consequences of this will be so devastating for so long. And um, it's just, it's a very simple, very simple solution. Um, definitely rent relief, eviction moratorium, and then folks have to know and have access to their rights in court, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you for letting me follow up. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, just, I'll just jump in very briefly and say, you know, there are some ways that state government can step up and help, and, and they have done that. Um, but ultimately, as members of the General Assembly will remind you, uh, the state can't print money, only the federal government can do that. So any kind of sustained, robust assistance um, that we're gonna see has to come from the federal level and, and it's badly needed. 
Um, and I think that we have a small window of opportunity with the continuing resolution expiring next week um, to be able to to push for that. And that's largely what we're why we're here advocating today. Thank you so much, Dustin. If any of our guests would like to say anything else, um, Catherine or Valerie Soda, I think we may have lost um, Ada, but if you all would like to have any additional uh, comments. I don't really think so at this time. I mean, I'm just hoping something gets approved. Right. And then increases in a good way. Because if not, there's, there's going to be a lot more people around here in a situation like mine. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see that for nobody. Right. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, um, I just wanted to add, it's, um, even though I share my story as well, you know, um, sorry, my guy's up. It, it's hard to listen to other people's stories. Um, and then there are so many other people. And I think uh, one challenge that I have um, is just that the, the stakeholders and the, like the policymakers, I feel like a lot of times they're out of touch with what's really happening and how their policies really do affect people. Mm -hmm. I hope you all can hear me, sorry. <laughs> um, and you know, I wish that they would listen to these stories and, and just really consider people and not, you know, have these blanket perceptions of what's happening or how their policies are affecting people because, you know, we, we have, several people here telling stories and it, it's, it's difficult and you know people need to know this know this when they're making decisions and not you know just be so far out of touch with what's happening on the ground with people um especially if they're not person affected because I I assume you know the government people also have their jobs and they don't have to call the unemployment phone number they don't have to use a food stamp card. They don't know when they make these changes or they, oh, it's a little bit of a, it's just a little bit, it's not a big deal. You know, a, a little bit is a lot when you have a tight budget, when you have children, when the holidays are coming up. Um, any increase, small is, is big. Um, I appreciate hearing the stories and, and I'm sharing my story too. So, you know, but I feel for everyone. And um, even what Ada was saying, it's really important to consider everyone. We all live here. So I just wanted to back up what she said, uh, that we're a nation of workers. We're a nation of people and like, we're not, we're not rich. We're not well to do, but we're going to sit here. We still want to live our American dream and live our best lives. And of course, none of us want COVID to go any more out of control than it is. We don't want to you know, I don't, I don't want to endanger anyone by continuing to work or continuing to have a restaurant open, but like every, the, I feel like the, the half and half, like, okay, restaurants are closed, but retails are open. Like, because we're doing it in small pieces, we're like, oh, but we can just forget about those little people. I really feel in some ways that it, it kind of needs to be like a all or nothing, because if we just eliminate some people from being able to work, I feel like people think it's not as pertinent to get it done. So like, oh, well, it's just a small percentage, not everyone. And, or to protect, like if we all, or if we all went back to work, then we wouldn't be protecting the vulnerable, the people that couldn't go back to work because of other reasons. And I just, going back, 
like, you know, if we could turn back Tom, I feel like, you know, we started a pan, like a federal pandemic group years ago. And really at that front, it should have started. What do our unemployment systems need to look like in case this happens? What do our food systems need to look like in case this pandemic happened? And I think as a whole, like granted, I've never been a part of those decision-making practices, but we're freaking America and we got a bunch of smart people up top. But they just went like, oh, never mind. We don't actually, it's not a problem yet. So let's just not deal with it. Like being the world power that we are, we should have known better and we should have done better. And thinking about that now, we need to move forward. We need to to quit using these poorly antiquated systems just because it doesn't help, you know, these, most of these problems don't affect the rich and the well-to-do or the powerful, like, because, but we're not a nation of just the rich and powerful. We're the nation of everyone. I feel like that ends it all for us. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for bringing that, Soda. That's such a beautiful end, way for us to end. Um, I am incredibly thankful and honored um, by everyone who is able to join us today and share your stories. So appreciative of just how brave that you are to step out and courageous to step out and talk about what's happening for you. And I thank you all for just bringing this back to people and individuals and not just numbers and um, big data. That was a December 3rd press conference organized by the Kentucky Together Coalition. We end the show with an interview with Jessica Wilkerson about her book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice. The interview is conducted by Tom Martin and aired on WEKU's Eastern Standard Program. To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice, a book by Jessica Wilkerson, Assistant Professor of History and Southern Studies and Graduate Director of Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. And she is on the Editorial Advisory Board of the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wilkerson. Thanks for having me, Tom. Your book is described by a reviewer that I read as quote, essential reading for anyone seeking to understand the war on poverty in Appalachia, end quote. And it amplifies the roles, which are often vital in history, that women have played in Appalachia. Am I correct that you focused on events that took place in the 60s and 70s? That's right. Yeah. And my project really started with a question about how women in Appalachia, and in particular, Eastern Kentucky, were involved in the war on poverty. And there had been quite a few books written about the war on poverty, especially the Appalachian war on poverty, but relatively little about the women who were so essential to anti-poverty programs. And so I wanted to show how they were involved in the war on poverty, but also how they used the momentum of that federal program to kind of spark other social movements that ended up animating 1960s and 70s Appalachia. For many who have explored its culture, its people, and economics, Appalachian Kentucky turns out to be a much more complex, much more complicated place than anticipated. Was that the experience that you had? Certainly. And I think that's always something that historians are interested in. I mean, as a discipline, we often are charting what we call change over time. 
um, as well as continuity. So what stays the same? What's different? We understand that places and people aren't static. And so I wanted to show how people, and in particular working class women, were responding to federal policies and how they were um, also responding to changes in the economy over the course of their lives. They lived, for the most part, in coal camps. And so how did those, and how did the economy and how did politics shape their lives? And in turn, how did they shape those things as well? I understand that you did quite a lot of oral history research for this book. What was it like for you to to hear those voices? Yes, yeah, so oral history was really fundamental to the project, and it's really how the project began. So, in fact, um, I'm I'm from East Tennessee, and when I got started initially, I wanted to focus on my home, and I wanted to folk, uh, write a book about women in East Tennessee. And the more I talked to people there the more I heard about all of these women in Eastern Kentucky who had been really models for people elsewhere. And and people kept saying, well, I really think you should go talk to folks like Eula Hall or Edith Easterling or Sue Ella Kobach. And so I ended up contacting many of those people and conducted oral history interviews. And it really shaped the story that I was able to tell. And part of that has to do with the fact that in most archival collections, especially when we're talking about governmental archival collections, we don't hear or see much from working class women. And so in order to tell the story, I really had to talk to those women and then go read in the archives and kind of read against the grain and try to piece together the story. Um, And so talking to them was really fundamental for the book. And also I'll say that there's, as, as you probably know, there's a long tradition of documentary work in Appalachia. And and so uh, with places like Apple Shop and other photographers and documentary filmmakers who were filming people and interviewing people in Appalachia in the 60s and 70s. So I also used many of those sources in order to tell the story. You know, I wonder, Jesse, if historians a half century from now will look back on this time as a time of change for that perception of the role of women in um, in Appalachia. Do you think, have things changed? Do you mean have things changed in their roles or in the perception of in, their roles? In the perception of their roles, in the recognition of their roles. Oh, definitely. And I think right now, you know, you and I are talking amid a pandemic where many of us are sheltering at home. But as we know, there are also many essential and frontline workers, and the majority of those people are women. And that's also the case in Appalachia, where you have um, many women who work in healthcare, or they work in um, home health aid services, and in grocery stores, and in daycares. And so I think more than ever, Um, not just in Appalachia, but across the entire country, we're seeing that women perform really vital roles, and they historically have done so, but oftentimes that labor is undervalued. And I think that, I I hope, and and I do think there will be a shift in how we think about women, what has typically been women's labor. 
Bravery and persistence come through as central to the character and the nature of these women as you describe them. And why do you single out these particular virtues? Well, I think that um, when I was interviewing these women and when I was doing the research on their lives, I was really struck by how Uh, Many of them had relatively little in the way of education and wealth and resources, yet they were willing to speak up against some of the most powerful people in their communities and in the state and, in fact, in the country. And they really demanded that um, that our society be more democratic and that it be more fair. And that takes a lot of courage for anyone. Uh, But I think it's particularly difficult if you don't have a lot of power at your disposal in the first place. Um, I'm a university professor. It's a little bit easier for me to speak out. And it's it's often expected that I'm going to be a kind of critic in my society. But these women didn't necessarily have that platform, uh, but they built it for themselves and they spoke up and they risked oftentimes their own jobs. One woman I wrote about, Edith Easterling, she lost her job as a school cook when she got involved in the war on poverty. Other women risked their husbands losing jobs when they spoke up. Many of them were accused of being leftists and communists as a way to undermine the work that they were doing. And so they really risked a lot. And I wanted to capture the stakes of that fight for them. Well, tell us about some of the unlikely coalitions that these women found themselves joining in service to a common cause. Yes. So for the most part, I wrote about white working class women. And the reason for that is that the anti-poverty programs in Appalachia really targeted white working class communities. Now, there were also African-American working class communities. And unfortunately, because of the way that the policies were designed at the time, many of those resources didn't reach black folks who often were had more need than white working class communities and were dealing with more poverty. So so the book um, really focuses on the people who ended up getting those resources. Now, at the same time, they ended up building coalitions with Um, many African-Americans and uh, civil rights activists and welfare rights activists. And many of those people were African-Americans who were leading those movements. So I'll give you just two examples. Um, So one of the alliances formed around the Poor People's Campaign, which was Martin Luther King Jr.'s final campaign. Of course, he didn't live to see it. But in 1968, he had called for a coalition of poor people of all races and ethnicities. And what happened is there was a campaign in D.C. There were these camps set up and people from all over the country showed up in D.C. and they would protest together and really demand an expansion of the war on poverty. They were also protesting the Vietnam War, which is taking resources away from things that might help people in terms of, let's say, um, the social safety net. And, And so that's one example of the coalitions that the women I write about were part of. The other one grows out of the Poor People's Campaign, and that is the welfare rights movement. The welfare rights movement was begun by black women who were receiving aid to families with dependent children, or what we popularly call welfare. 
And, and those women really argued that their labor of raising children was important and valuable and that they needed the resources to be able to do that well. And many white uh, women and men, I think that's sometimes the surprising part, is that men were also involved. Um, they joined forces with black welfare rights activists and they protested together in Frankfort, Kentucky. They also went to D.C. together and they really demanded an expansion of the social safety net. They said that every citizen in the United States deserves the right to have shelter and to be able to eat and to be able to maintain your basic quality of life. Upon reading this book, what would you hope that men would take away from it? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Hmm. Well, I think to the point that I just made about welfare, um, I think what, what surprised me in writing the book is that working class women and men joined together in the welfare rights movement. And today, welfare is really stigmatized. And it's really people see it as a sign that people are lazy or they don't want to work um, and that they don't deserve it. But in the late 60s, that stereotype at least among working class people, didn't really exist yet. What people, including many men, argued was that at some point in our lives, we all need help. We're all going to be dependent at some point. And um, for many of the men who got involved, it was because they had contracted black lung disease. And so um, they had worked hard and then they were still struggling. So what does that mean if you live in a society that just kind of abandons you and you can't do hard labor anymore? And so I think um, for me, you know, I, I guess I would say you know, opening up that story that we often assume is only about women and allowing us to see that men and women were working together on many of these issues is really important. Um, I'm, I consider myself a women's historian, a women's historian, and I start from the perspective of women. But what I would say is that when you're talking about working class communities, women and men by necessity are often working together to survive. And I think that's important to remember. I grew up in eastern Kentucky, and I have to say that uh, studying your book has really made me think about the women that were really important in the community that I grew up in. Uh, a doctor, for example, Claire Louise Cottle, who was just amazing, and now the regional hospital in Moorhead, Kentucky is named for her. And I have to believe that there are many, many, many more examples of that kind of strength throughout the region. Yes, absolutely. And I do want to say that I feel like my book just took a tiny slice of that story of, of telling women's stories and how they helped to shape their communities and the vital work that they did there. And so I want to say to your listeners, especially those who might be interested in being historians eventually, um, that there's a lot of research yet to be done on the women who had a big impact on the history of Appalachia and in Kentucky history. So there are many, many more books that could be written. 
Jessica Wilkerson, author of To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women-Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice, published by the University of Illinois Press. It's available as a paperback or digital on Amazon.com. Now at the University of Mississippi, as I mentioned, Dr. Wilkerson will in the fall join the West Virginia University History Department as the Robbins Chair in Appalachian and 20th Century U.S. History. Thanks and good luck, Jesse. We appreciate it. Our stories exploring opportunities and challenges for building a new economy and healthy communities in Central Appalachia are available at www.makingconnectionsnews.org and wherever you find your podcasts. This is Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening.